Chapter Thirteen, Part Three, of the Rainbow, by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. She must, during the next week, watch over her books and punish any fault. Her soul decided it coldly. Her personal desire was dead for that day at least. She must have nothing more of herself in school. She was to be standard five teacher only. That was her duty. In school she was nothing but standard five teacher. Ursula Brangwen must be excluded. So that, pale, shut, at last distant and impersonal, she saw no longer the child, how his eyes danced, or how he had a queer little soul that could not be bothered with shaping handwriting, so long as he dashed down what he thought. She saw no children, only the task that was to be done. And keeping her eyes there, on the task, and not on the child, she was impersonal enough to punish where she could otherwise only have sympathised, understood, and condoned, to approve where she would have been merely uninterested before. But her interest had no place any more. It was agony to the impulsive, bright girl of seventeen to become distant and official, having no personal relationship with the children. For a few days, after the agony of the Monday, she succeeded, and had some success with her class, but it was a state not natural to her, and she began to relax. There came another infliction. There were not enough pens to go round the class. She sent to Mr. Harby for more. He came in person. "'Not enough pens, Miss Brangwen,' he said, with the smile and calm of exceeding rage against her. "'No, we are six short,' she said, quaking. "'Oh, how is that?' he said menacingly. Then, looking over the class, he asked, "'How many are there to-day?' two, said Ursula, but he did not take any notice, counting for himself. Fifty-two, he said. "'And how many pens are there, Staples?' Ursula was now silent. He would not heed her if she answered, since he had addressed the monitor. "'That's a very curious thing,' said Mr. Harby, looking over the silent class, with a slight grin of fury. All the childish faces looked up at him, blank and exposed. "'A few days ago there were sixty pens for this class. Now there are forty-eight. "'What is forty-eight from sixty, Williams?' There was a sinister suspense in the question. A thin, ferret-faced boy in a sailor-suit started up exaggeratedly. "'Please, sir,' he said. Then a slow, sly grin came over his face. He did not know. There was a tense silence. The boy dropped his head. Then he looked up again, a little cunning triumph in his eyes. Twelve, he said. "'I would advise you to attend,' said the headmaster, dangerously. The boy sat down. Forty-eight from sixty is twelve. So there are twelve pens to account for. Have you looked for them, Staples?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Then look again.' The scene dragged on. Two pens were found. Ten were missing. Then the storm burst. "'Am I to have you thieving, beside your dirt and bad work and bad behaviour?' the headmaster began. "'Not content with being the worst-behaved and dirtiest class in the school, you are thieves into the bargain, are you? It is a very funny thing. Pens don't melt into the air. Pens are not in the habit of mizzling away into nothing.' What has become of them, then? They must be somewhere. What has become of them? For they must be found, and found by Standard Five. 
They were lost by Standard Five, and they must be found. Ursula stood and listened, her heart hard and cold. She was so much upset that she felt almost mad. Something in her tempted her to turn on the headmaster and tell him to stop, about the miserable pens. But she did not. She could not. After every session, morning and evening, she had the pens counted. Still they were missing, and pencils and india-rubbers disappeared. She kept the class staying behind till the things were found. But as soon as Mr. Harby had gone out of the room, the boys began to jump about and shout, and at last they bolted in a body from the school. This was drawing near a crisis. She could not tell Mr. Harby, because, while he would punish the class, he would make her the cause of the punishment, and her class would pay her back with disobedience and derision. Already there was a deadly hostility grown up between her and the children. After keeping in the class at evening to finish some work, she would find boys dodging behind her, calling after her, Brangwyn, Brangwyn, proud acre. When she went into Ilkeston of a Saturday morning with Gudrun, she heard again the voices yelling after her, Brangwen, Brangwen. She pretended to take no notice, but she coloured with shame at being held up to derision in the public street. She, Ursula Brangwen of Cossethay, could not escape from the standard five teacher which she was. In vain she went out to buy ribbon for her hat. They called after her, the boys she tried to teach and one evening, as she went from the edge of town into the country, stones came flying at her. Then the passion of shame and anger surpassed her. She walked on unheeding, beside herself. Because of the darkness she could not see who were those that threw, but she did not want to know. Only in her soul a change took place. Never more, and never more, would she give herself as individual to her class. Never would she, Ursula Brangwen, the girl she was, the person she was, come into contact with those boys. She would be standard five teacher, as far away personally from her class as if she had never set foot in St. Philip's school. She would just obliterate them all, and keep herself apart, take them as scholars only. So her face grew more and more shut, and over her flayed, exposed soul of a young girl who had gone open and warm to give herself to the children, there set a hard, insentient thing, that worked mechanically according to a system imposed. It seemed she scarcely saw her class the next day. She could only feel her will, and what she would have of this class which she must grasp into subjection. It was no good, any more, to appeal, to play upon the better feelings of the class. Her swift-working soul realised this. She, as teacher, must bring them all as scholars into subjection, and this she was going to do. All else she would forsake. She had become hard and impersonal, almost avengeful on herself as well as on them, since the stone-throwing. She did not want to be a person, to be herself any more, after such humiliation. She would assert herself for mastery, be only teacher. She was set now. She was going to fight and subdue. She knew by now her enemies in the class. The one she hated most was Williams. He was a sort of defective, not bad enough to be so classed. He could read with fluency, and had plenty of cunning intelligence, but he could not keep still. And he had a kind of sickness, very repulsive to a sensitive girl, something cunning and etiolated and degenerate. 
Once he had thrown an inkwell at her in one of his mad little rages. Twice he had run home out of class. He was a well-known character. And he grinned up his sleeve at this girl-teacher, sometimes hanging round to fawn on her. But this made her dislike him more. He had a kind of leech-like power. From one of the children she took a supple cane, and this she determined to use when the real occasion came. One morning at composition she said to the boy Williams, "'Why have you made this blot?' "'Please, miss, it fell off my pen,' he whined out, in the mocking voice that he was so clever in using. The boy's near snorted with laughter, for Williams was an actor. He could tickle the feelings of his hearers subtly. Particularly he could tickle the children with him into ridiculing his teacher, or indeed any authority of which he was not afraid. He had that peculiar jail instinct. "'Then you must stay in and finish another page of composition,' said the teacher. This was against her usual sense of justice, and the boy resented it derisively. At twelve o'clock she caught him slinking out. "'Williams, sit down,' she said. And there she sat, and there he sat, alone, opposite to her, on the back desk, looking up at her with his furtive eyes every minute. "'Please, miss, I've got to go an errand,' he called out insolently. "'Bring me your book,' said Ursula. The boy came out, flapping his book along the desks. He had not written a line. "'Go back and do the writing you have to do,' said Ursula. And she sat at her desk, trying to correct books. She was trembling and upset. And for an hour the miserable boy writhed and grinned in his seat. At the end of that time he had done five lines. "'As it is so late now,' said Ursula, "'you will finish the rest this evening.' The boy kicked his way insolently down the passage. The afternoon came again. Williams was there, glancing at her, and her heart beat thick, for she knew it was a fight between them. She watched him. During the geography lesson, as she was pointing to the map with her cane, the boy continually ducked his whitish head under the desk, and attracted the attention of other boys. "'Williams,' she said, gathering her courage, for it was critical now to speak to him. "'What are you doing?' He lifted his face, the sore-rimmed eyes half-smiling. There was something intrinsically indecent about him. Ursula shrank away. "'Nothing,' he replied, feeling a triumph. "'What are you doing?' she repeated, her heart beat suffocating her. "'Nothing,' replied the boy, insolently, aggrieved, comic. "'If I speak to you again, you must go down to Mr. Harby,' she said. But this boy was a match even for Mr. Harby. He was so persistent, so cringing and flexible, he howled so when he was hurt, that the master hated more the teacher who sent him than he hated the boy himself. For of the boy he was sick of the sight, which Williams knew. He grinned visibly. Ursula turned to the map again, to go on with the geography lesson. But there was a little ferment in the class. Williams' spirit infected them all. She heard a scuffle, and then she trembled inwardly. If they all turned on her this time, she was beaten. "'Please, miss,' called a voice in distress. She turned round. One of the boys she liked was ruefully holding out a torn celluloid collar. She heard the complaint, feeling futile. "'Go in front right,' she said. She was trembling in every fibre. A big, sullen boy, not bad but very difficult, slouched out to the front. She went on with the lesson, aware that Williams was making faces at Wright, and that Wright was grinning behind her. 
She was afraid. She turned to the map again, and she was afraid. "'Please, Miss, Williams!' came a sharp cry, and a boy on the back row was standing up, with drawn, pained brows, half a mocking grin on his pain, half real resentment against Williams. "'Please, Miss, he's nipped me!' and he rubbed his leg ruefully. "'Come in front, Williams,' she said. The rat-like boy sat with his pale smile, and did not move. "'Come in front,' she repeated, definite now. "'I shan't!' he cried, snarling, rat-like, grinning. Something went click in Ursula's soul. Her face and eyes set, she went through the class straight. The boy cowered before her glowering, fixed eyes, but she advanced on him, seized him by the arm, and dragged him from his seat. He clung to the form. It was the battle between him and her. Her instinct had suddenly become calm and quick. She jerked him from his grip, and dragged him, struggling and kicking to the front. He kicked her several times, and clung to the forms as he passed, but she went on. The class was on its feet in excitement. She saw it, and made no move. She knew if she let go the boy he would dash to the door. Already he had run home once out of her class. So she snatched her cane from the desk, and brought it down on him. He was writhing and kicking. She saw his face beneath her, white, with eyes like the eyes of a fish, stony, yet full of hate and horrible fear, and she loathed him, the hideous, writhing thing that was nearly too much for her. In horror lest he should overcome her, and yet at the heart quite calm, she brought down the cane again and again, whilst he struggled, making inarticulate noises and lunging vicious kicks at her. With one hand she managed to hold him, and now and then the cane came down on him. He writhed like a mad thing, but the pain of the strokes cut through his writhing, vicious, coward's courage, bit deeper, till at last, with a long whimper that became a yell, he went limp. She let him go, and he rushed at her, his teeth and eyes glinting. There was a second of agonised terror in her heart. He was a beast thing. Then she caught him, and the cane came down on him. A few times, madly, in a frenzy, he lunged and writhed to kick her. But again the cane broke him. He sank with a howling yell on the floor, and like a beaten beast, lay there yelling. Mr. Harby had rushed up towards the end of this performance. "'What's the matter?' he roared. Ursula felt as if something were going to break in her. "'I've thrashed him,' she said, her breast heaving, forcing out the words on the last breath. The headmaster stood choked with rage, helpless. She looked at the writhing, howling figure on the floor. "'Get up,' she said. The thing writhed away from her. She took a step forward. She had realised the presence of the headmaster for one second, and then she was oblivious of it again. "'Get up,' she said, and with a little dart the boy was on his feet. His yelling dropped to a mad blubber. He had been in a frenzy. "'Go and stand by the radiator,' she said. As if mechanically, blubbering, he went. The headmaster stood robbed of movement or speech. His face was yellow, his hands twitched convulsively. But Ursula stood stiff not far from him. Nothing could touch her now. She was beyond Mr. Harby. She was as if violated to death. The headmaster muttered something, turned and went down the room, 
whence from the far end he was heard roaring in a mad rage at his own class. The boy blubbered wildly by the radiator. Ursula looked at the class. There were fifty pale, still faces watching her, a hundred round eyes fixed on her in an attentive, expressionless stare. "'Give out the history, readers,' she said to the monitors. There was dead silence. As she stood there she could hear again the ticking of the clock, and the chock of piles of books taken out of the low cupboard. Then came the faint flap of books on the desks. The children passed in silence, their hands working in unison. They were no longer a pack, but each one separated into a silent, closed thing. "'Take page 125 and read that chapter,' said Ursula. There was a click of many books opened. The children found the page, and bent their heads obediently to read, and they read mechanically. Ursula, who was trembling violently, went and sat in her high chair. The blubbering of the boy continued. The strident voice of Mr. Brunt, the roar of Mr. Harby came muffled through the glass partition. And now and then a pair of eyes rose from the reading-book, rested on her a moment, watchful, as if calculating impersonally, then sank again. She sat still, without moving, her eyes watching the class, unseeing. She was quite still and weak. She felt that she could not raise her hand from the desk. If she sat there for ever, she felt she could not move again, nor utter a command. It was a quarter past four. She almost dreaded the closing of the school, when she would be alone. The class began to recover its ease. The tension relaxed. Williams was still crying. Mr. Brunt was giving orders for the closing of the lesson. Ursula got down. "'Take your place, Williams,' she said. He dragged his feet across the room, wiping his face on his sleeve. As he sat down, he glanced at her furtively, his eyes still redder. Now he looked like some beaten rat. At last the children were gone. Mr. Harby trod by heavily, without looking her way or speaking. Mr. Brunt hesitated as she was locking her cupboard. "'If you settle Clark and Letts in the same way, Miss Brangwen, you'll be all right,' he said, his blue eyes glancing down in a strange fellowship, his long nose pointing at her. "'Shall I?' she laughed nervously. She did not want anybody to talk to her. As she went along the street, clattering on the granite pavement, she was aware of boys dodging behind her. Something struck her hand that was carrying her bag, bruising her. As it rolled away, she saw that it was a potato. Her hand was hurt, but she gave no sign. Soon she would take the tram. She was afraid and strange. It was to her quite strange and ugly, like some dream where she was degraded. She would have died rather than admit it to anybody. She could not look at her swollen hand. Something had broken in her. She had passed a crisis. Williams was beaten, but at a cost. Feeling too much upset to go home, she rode a little farther into the town and got down from the tram at a small tea-shop. There, in the dark little place behind the shop, she drank her tea and ate bread and butter. She did not taste anything. The taking of tea was just a mechanical action, to cover over her existence. There she sat in the dark, obscure little place, without knowing. Only unconsciously she nursed the back of her hand, which was bruised. When finally she took her way home, it was sunset red across the west. She did not know why she was going home. There was nothing for her there. 
She had, true, only to pretend to be normal. There was nobody she could speak to, nowhere to go for escape. But she must keep on, under this red sunset, alone, knowing the horror in humanity that would destroy her, and with which she was at war. Yet it had to be so. In the morning again she must go to school. She got up and went without murmuring even to herself. She was in the hands of some bigger, stronger, coarser will. School was fairly quiet, but she could feel the class watching her, ready to spring on her. Her instinct was aware of the class instinct to catch her if she were weak, but she kept cold and was guarded. Williams was absent from school. In the middle of the morning there was a knock at the door. Someone wanted the headmaster. Mr. Harby went out, heavily, angrily, nervously. He was afraid of irate parents. After a moment in the passage, he came again into school. Sturgis, he called to one of his larger boys, stand in front of the class and write down the name of anyone who speaks. Will you come this way, Miss Brangwen? He seemed vindictively to seize upon her. Ursula followed him and found in the lobby a thin woman with a whitish skin, not ill-dressed, in a grey costume and a purple hat. I called about Vernon, said the woman, speaking in a refined accent. There was about the woman altogether an appearance of refinement and of cleanliness, curiously contradicted by her half-beggar's deportment, and a sense of her being unpleasant to touch, like something going bad inside. She was neither a lady nor an ordinary working man's wife, but a creature separate from society. By her dress she was not poor. Ursula knew at once that she was William's mother, and that he was Vernon. She remembered that he was always clean and well-dressed in a sailor-suit, and he had this same peculiar, half-transparent unwholesomeness, rather like a corpse. "'I wasn't able to send him to school to-day,' continued the woman, with a false grace of manner. "'He came home last night so ill. He was violently sick. I thought I should have to send for the doctor. You know he has a weak heart.' The woman looked at Ursula with her pale, dead eyes. "'No,' replied the girl, "'I did not know.' She stood still with repulsion and uncertainty. Mr. Harby, large and male, with his overhanging moustache, stood by with a slight, ugly smile at the corner of his eyes. The woman went on insidiously, not quite human. "'Oh, yes. He has had heart disease ever since he was a child. That is why he isn't very regular at school.' and it is very bad to beat him. He was awfully ill this morning. I shall call on the doctor as I go back. "'Who is staying with him now, then?' put in the deep voice of the schoolmaster, cunningly. "'Oh, I left him with a woman who comes in to help me, and who understands him. But I shall call in the doctor on my way home.' Ursula stood still. She felt vague threats in all this, but the woman was so utterly strange to her that she did not understand. "'He told me he'd been beaten,' continued the woman, "'and when I undressed him to put him to bed, "'his body was covered with marks. "'I could show them to any doctor.' "'Mr. Harby looked at Ursula to answer. "'She began to understand. "'The woman was threatening to take out a charge of assault on her son against her. "'Perhaps she wanted money. "'I caned him,' she said. "'He was so much trouble.' "'I'm sorry if he was troublesome,' said the woman, "'but he must have been shamefully beaten.' I could show the marks to any doctor. I'm sure it isn't allowed, if it was known. I caned him while he kept kicking me, said Ursula, getting angry because she was half excusing herself. 
Mr. Harby, standing there with the twinkle at the side of his eyes, enjoying the dilemma of the two women. "'I'm sure I'm sorry if he behaved badly,' said the woman. "'But I can't think he deserved beating as he has been. I can't send him to school, and really can't afford to pay the doctor. Is it allowed for the teachers to beat the children like that, Mr. Harby?' The headmaster refused to answer. Ursula loathed herself, and loathed Mr. Harby with his twinkling cunning and malice on the occasion. The other miserable woman watched her chance. "'It is an expense to me, and I have a great struggle to keep my boy decent.' Ursula still would not answer. She looked out at the asphalt yard, where a dirty rag of paper was blowing. "'And it isn't allowed to beat a child like that, I am sure, especially when he is delicate.' Ursula stared with a set face on the yard, as if she did not hear. She loathed all this, and had ceased to feel, or to exist. "'Though I know he is troublesome sometimes. But I think it was too much. His body is covered with marks.' Mr. Harby stood, sturdy and unmoved, waiting now to have done, with the twinkling, tiny wrinkles of an ironical smile at the corners of his eyes. He felt himself master of the situation. And he was violently sick. I couldn't possibly send him to school today. He couldn't keep his head up. Yet she had no answer. "'You will understand, sir, why he is absent,' she said, turning to Mr. Harby. "'Oh, yes,' he said rough and off-hand. Ursula detested him for his male triumph, and she loathed the woman. She loathed everything. "'You will try to have it remembered, sir, that he has a weak heart. He is so sick after these things.' "'Yes,' said the headmaster. "'I'll see about it.' "'I know he is troublesome,' the woman only addressed herself to the male now. "'But if you could have him punished without beating. He is really delicate.' Ursula was beginning to feel upset. Harby stood in rather superb mastery, the woman cringing to him to tickle him as one tickles trout. "'I had come to explain why he was away this morning, sir. You will understand.' She held out her hand. Harby took it and let it go, surprised and angry. "'Good morning,' she said, and gave her gloved, seedy hand to Ursula. She was not ill-looking, and had a curious, insinuating way— very distasteful, yet effective. "'Good morning, Mr. Harby, and thank you.' The figure in the grey costume and the purple hat was going across the schoolyard with a curious, lingering walk. Ursula felt a strange pity for her, and revulsion from her. She shuddered. She went into the school again. The next morning Williams turned up, looking paler than ever, very neat and nicely dressed in his sailor blouse. He glanced at Ursula with a half-smile, cunning, subdued, ready to do as she told him. There was something about him that made her shiver. She loathed the idea of having laid hands on him. His elder brother was standing outside the gate at playtime, a youth of about fifteen, tall and thin and pale. He raised his hat, almost like a gentleman, but there was something subdued, insidious about him too. "'Who is it?' said Ursula. "'It's the big Williams,' said Violet Harby roughly. "'She was here yesterday, wasn't she?' "'Yes. It's no good her coming. Her character's not good enough for her to make any trouble.' Ursula shrank from the brutality and the scandal, but it had some vague, horrid fascination. How sordid everything seemed! 
She felt sorry for the queer woman with the lingering walk, and those queer insidious boys. The Williams in her class was wrong somewhere. How nasty it was altogether. So the battle went on till her heart was sick. She had several more boys to subjugate before she could establish herself, and Mr. Harby hated her almost as if she were a man. She knew now that nothing but a thrashing would settle some of the big louts who wanted to play cat and mouse with her. Mr. Harby would not give them the thrashing if he could help it, for he hated the teacher, the stuck-up, insolent high-school miss with her independence. "'Now, right, what have you done this time?' he would say genially to the boy who was sent to him from Standard Five for punishment, and he left the lad standing, lounging, wasting his time so that Ursula would appeal no more to the headmaster. But when she was driven wild, she seized her cane and slashed the boy who was insolent to her, over head and ears and hands, and at length they were afraid of her. She had them in order. But she had paid a great price out of her own soul to do this. It seemed as if a great flame had gone through her and burnt her sensitive tissue. She who shrank from the thought of physical suffering in any form had been forced to fight and beat with a cane and rouse all her instincts to hurt. And afterwards she had been forced to endure the sound of their blubbering and desolation when she had broken them to order. Oh, and sometimes she felt as if she would go mad. What did it matter? What did it matter if their books were dirty and they did not obey? She would rather, in reality, that they disobeyed the whole rules of the school than that they should be beaten broken, reduced to this crying, hopeless state. She would rather bear all their insults and insolences a thousand times than reduce herself and them to this. Bitterly she repented having got beside herself, and having tackled the boy she had beaten. Yet it had to be so. She did not want to do it, yet she had to. Oh, why, why had she leagued herself to this evil system where she must brutalise herself to live? Why had she become a school-teacher? Why? Why? The children had forced her to the beatings. No, she did not pity them. She had come to them full of kindness and love, and they would have torn her to pieces. They chose Mr. Harby. Well, then, they must know her as well as Mr. Harby. They must first be subjugate to her, for she was not going to be made naught, no, neither by them, nor Mr. Harby, nor by all the system around her. She was not going to be put down, prevented from standing free. It was not to be said of her she could not take her place and carry out her task. She would fight and hold her place in this state also, in the world of work and man's convention. She was isolated now from the life of her childhood, a foreigner in a new life, of work and mechanical consideration. She and Maggie, in their dinner hours and their occasional teas at the little restaurant, discussed life and ideas. Maggie was a great suffragette, trusting in the vote. To Ursula the vote was never a reality. She had within her the strange, passionate knowledge of religion, and living far transcending the limits of the automatic system that contained the vote. But her fundamental, organic knowledge had as yet to take form and rise to utterance. For her, as for Maggie, the liberty of woman meant something real and deep. She felt that somewhere, in something, she was not free, and she wanted to be. She was in revolt. For once she were free she could get somewhere. 
ah the wonderful real somewhere that was beyond her the somewhere that she felt deep deep inside her in coming out and earning her own living she had made a strong cruel move towards freeing herself but having more freedom she only became more profoundly aware of the big want she wanted so many things she wanted to read great beautiful books and be rich with them she wanted to see beautiful things and have the joy of them for ever she wanted to know big free people and there remained always the want she could put no name to it was so difficult there were so many things so much to meet and surpass and one never knew where one was going it was a blind fight she had suffered bitterly in this school of st philip's she was like a young filly that has been broken in to the shafts and has lost its freedom and now she was suffering bitterly from the agony of the shafts the agony the galling the ignominy of her breaking in this wore into her soul but she would never submit to shafts like these she would never submit for long but she would know them she would serve them that she might destroy them she and maggie went to all kinds of places together to big suffrage meetings in nottingham to concerts to theatres to exhibitions of pictures ursula saved her money and bought a bicycle and the two girls rode to lincoln to southwell and into derbyshire they had an endless wealth of things to talk about and it was a great joy finding discovering but ursula never told about winifred inger that was a sort of secret sideshow to her life never to be opened she did not even think of it it was the closed door she had not the strength to open once she was broken into her teaching ursula began gradually to have a new life of her own again she was going to college in eighteen months time then she would take her degree and she would ah she would perhaps be a big woman and lead a movement who knows at any rate she would go to college in eighteen months time all that mattered now was work work until college she must go on with this teaching in st philip's school which was always destroying her but which she could now manage without spoiling all her life she would submit to it for a time since the time had a definite limit the class teaching itself at last became almost mechanical it was a strain on her an exhausting wearying strain always unnatural but there was a certain amount of pleasure in the sheer oblivion of teaching so much work to do so many children to see after so much to be done that one's self was forgotten when the work had become like habit to her and her individual soul was left out had its growth elsewhere then she could be almost happy her real individual self drew together and became more coherent during these two years of teaching during the struggle against the odds of class teaching it was always a prison to her the school but it was a prison where her wild chaotic soul became hard and independent when she was well enough and not tired then she did not hate the teaching she enjoyed getting into the swing of work of a morning putting forth all her strength making the thing go it was for her a strenuous form of exercise and her soul was left to rest it had the time of torpor in which to gather itself together in strength again but the teaching hours were too long the tasks too heavy and the disciplinary condition of the school too unnatural for her she was worn very thin and quivering she came to school in the morning seeing the hawthorn flowers wet the little rosy grains swimming in a bowl of dew 
The larks quivered their song up into the new sunshine, and the country was so glad. It was a violation to plunge into the dust and greyness of the town. So that she stood before her class, unwilling to give herself up to the activity of teaching, to turn her energy, that longed for the country and for joy of early summer, into the dominating of fifty children and the transferring to them some morsels of arithmetic. There was a little absentness about her. She could not force herself into forgetfulness. A jar of buttercups and fool's parsley in the window-bottom kept her away in the meadows, where, in the lush grass, the moon-daisies were half-submerged, and a spray of pink ragged robin. Yet before her were faces of fifty children. They were almost like big daisies in a dimness of the grass. A brightness was on her face, a little unreality in her teaching. She could not quite see her children. She was struggling between two worlds, her own world of young summer and flowers, and this other world of work, and the glimmer of her own sunlight was between her and her class. Then the morning passed, with a strange far-awayness and quietness. Dinner-time came, when she and Maggie ate joyously, with all the windows open, and then they went out into St. Philip's churchyard, where was a shadowy corner under red hawthorn-trees, and there they talked, and read Shelley or Browning, or some work about woman and labour. And when she went back to the school, Ursula lived still in the shadowy corner of the graveyard, where pink-red petals lay scattered from the hawthorn-tree, like myriad tiny shells on a beach, and a church bell sometimes rang sonorously, and sometimes a bird called out, whilst Maggie's voice went on, low and sweet. These days she was happy in her soul. Oh, she was so happy, that she wished she could take her joy and scatter it in armfuls broadcast. She made her children happy, too, with a little tingling of delight. But to her the children were not a school class this afternoon. They were flowers, birds, little bright animals, children, anything. They were only not standard five. She felt no responsibility for them. It was for once a game, this teaching. And if they got their sums wrong, what matter? And she would take a pleasant bit of reading. And instead of history with dates, she would tell a lovely tale. And for grammar, they could have a bit of written analysis that was not difficult, because they had done it before. She shall be sportive as a fawn, that wild with glee across the lawn, or up the mountain springs. She wrote that from memory, because it pleased her. So the golden afternoon passed away, and she went home, happy. She had finished her day of school, and was free to plunge into the glowing evening of Cossethay. And she loved walking home. But it had not been school. It had been playing at school, beneath red hawthorn blossom. She could not go on like this. The quarterly examination was coming, and a class was not ready. It irritated her that she must drag herself away from her happy self, and exert herself with all her strength to force, to compel this heavy class of children to work hard at arithmetic. They did not want to work. She did not want to compel them. And yet some second conscience gnawed at her, telling her the work was not properly done. It irritated her almost to madness, and she let loose all the irritation in the class. Then followed a day of battle and hate and violence, when she went home raw, feeling the golden evening taken away from her, 
herself incarcerated in some dark, heavy place, and chained there with a consciousness of having done badly at work. What good was it that it was summer, that right till evening, when the corn-crakes called, the larks would mount up into the light to sing once more before nightfall? What good was it all, when she was out of tune, when she must only remember the burden and shame of school that day? And still she hated school. Still she cried, she did not believe in it. Why should the children learn, and why should she teach them? It was all so much milling the wind. What folly was it that made life into this, the fulfilling of some stupid, factitious duty? It was all so made up, so unnatural. The school, the sums, the grammar, the quarterly examinations, the registers. It was all a barren nothing. Why should she give her allegiance to this world, and let it so dominate her that her own world of warm sun and growing, sap-filled life was turned into nothing? She was not going to do it. She was not going to be a prisoner in the dry, tyrannical man-world. She was not going to care about it. What did it matter if her class did ever so badly in the quarterly examination? Let it! What did it matter? Nevertheless, when the time came, and the report on her class was bad, she was miserable, and the joy of the summer was taken away from her. She was shut up in gloom. She could not really escape from this world of system and work, out into her fields where she was happy. She must have her place in the working world, be a recognised member with full rights there. It was more important to her than fields and sun and poetry at this time, but she was only the more its enemy. It was a very difficult thing, she thought, during the long hours of intermission in the summer holidays, to be herself, her happy self that enjoyed so much to lie in the sun, to play and swim and be content, and also to be a school-teacher, getting results out of a class of children. She dreamed fondly of the time when she need not be a teacher any more, but vaguely she knew that responsibility had taken place in her for ever and as yet her prime business was to work. The autumn passed away, the winter was at hand. Ursula became more and more an inhabitant of the world of work, and of what is called life. She could not see her future, but a little way off was college, and to the thought of this she clung fixedly. She would go to college, and get her two or three years' training, free of cost. Already she had applied and had her place appointed for the coming year. So she continued to study for her degree. She would take French, Latin, English, mathematics, and botany. She went to classes in Ilkeston. She studied at evening. For there was this world to conquer, this knowledge to acquire, this qualification to attain. And she worked with intensity, because of a want inside her that drove her on. Almost everything was subordinated now to this one desire to take her place in the world. What kind of place it was to be, she did not ask herself. The blind desire drove her on. She must take her place. She knew she would never be much of a success as an elementary school teacher, but neither had she failed. She hated it, but she had managed it. Maggie had left St. Philip's school and found a more congenial post. The two girls remained friends. They met at evening classes. They studied and somehow encouraged a firm hope, each in the other. They did not know whither they were making, nor what they ultimately wanted, 
but they knew they wanted now to learn, to know, and to do. They talked of love and marriage, and the position of woman in marriage. Maggie said that love was the flower of life, and blossomed unexpectedly, and without law, and must be plucked where it was found, and enjoyed for the brief hour of its duration. To Ursula this was unsatisfactory. She thought she still loved Anton Skrebensky, but she did not forgive him that he had not been strong enough to acknowledge her. He had denied her. How, then, could she love him? How, then, was love so absolute? She did not believe it. She believed that love was a way, a means, not an end in itself, as Maggie seemed to think. And always the way of love would be found. But whither did it lead? I believe there are many men in the world one might love. There is not only one man, said Ursula. She was thinking of Skrebensky. Her heart was hollow with the knowledge of Winifred Inger. "'But you must distinguish between love and passion,' said Maggie, adding with a touch of contempt. "'Men will easily have a passion for you, but they won't love you.' "'Yes,' said Ursula, vehemently, the look of suffering, almost of fanaticism on her face. "'Passion is only part of love, and it seems so much because it can't last. That is why passion is never happy.' She was staunch for joy, for happiness, and permanency, in contrast with Maggie, who was for sadness and the inevitable passing away of things. Ursula suffered bitterly at the hands of life. Maggie was always single, always withheld, so she went in a heavy brooding sadness that was almost meat to her. In Ursula's last winter at St. Philip's the friendship of the two girls came to a climax. It was during this winter that Ursula suffered and enjoyed most keenly Maggie's fundamental sadness of enclosedness. Maggie enjoyed and suffered Ursula's struggles against the confines of her life. And then the two girls began to drift apart, as Ursula broke from that form of life wherein Maggie must remain enclosed. End of Chapter 13 Part 3 Read by Tony Foster